Hey friends, do you ever wonder if there's more to the Bible than you've been able to glean from sermons and popular Bible studies? Our guest today says that learning to read scripture well is one of the most important practices a Christian can acquire. That includes you. It includes me. You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 333, Thorsten Moritz and Created to Interpret. Hey friends, welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you for being here. As always, I am super glad that you've downloaded this episode. Uh, I know I work really hard to make sure that these episodes are encouraging to you, that they let you know about uh, everything from the spiritual journey. We have a great conversation today. Before we get into that, I want to uh, just remind you, if you haven't and you haven't, you want to, there's show notes at halfwaytherepodcast.com. So anytime we mention a link or, uh, you know, a book, something like that, it's all listed there. You can find it. And uh, you, there's also a Patreon button. So if you want to help support the show, uh, some of you do that. And I, I really deeply appreciate it. $5 a month or more if you if you want to. Helps just keep us running. That really uh, is helpful to just pay for things like hosting and stuff that people don't even know podcasts require. So thank you for that. And for those of you who do that. All right, let's dive straight in to our conversation. Uh, so uh, I love, I, I, I kind of talked about it a little bit here, but I love how uh, TikTok has been very interesting. I found our guest first on TikTok. He's all over the place, but uh, we're going to talk about it, uh, about something really interesting. So our guest today, he's a theology and hermeneutics professor. We're going to dive into hermeneutics, I'm sure. Uh, Thorsten Moritz. How are you, Thorsten? How are you? Good to see you. Welcome to Halfway There. Thank you. Doing very well. Good to be with you. I am glad to have you here. So yeah, I found you on TikTok because you're you're out there doing doing TikToks, but you're, you're on Instagram and other places. But uh, I love that you're doing that because I don't see a lot of theology professors on TikTok. Yes, I, I don't know why that is. And I wasn't going to be on TikTok either. But uh, a potential future student of mine who got to know me uh, with that interest in mind, he more or less talked me into being on TikTok. And I, I sort of, I, you know, I said, okay, why not? Let's try it. But I didn't really believe in it. But then uh, I realized that, you know, how many people you can reach that way. So I've been doing it for, I guess, a little over a year now. Yeah. Ask some good questions and uh, have some good uh, conversations that I think we need to be having. And that's what that's what that platform is good for. Uh, so that's great. So uh, obviously, it's pretty broad to say that you're a theology and hermeneutics professor. Tell us a little more about who you are and where God has you right now. So I'm I'm a I'm a German guy who uh, who kind of became a Christian by accident. I, I I was an exchange student in Pennsylvania for a year. And when I came back and, you know, you, you, you make new friends and they happen to be in a church youth group and they asked me to lead them. And uh, like a fool, I said, yes. And then when you lead a church youth group, eventually, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you get into the story more and you lead Bible studies. And, and that's how I got there. And if you say this is the wrong way around, then you would be absolutely right. So, so that's kind of how the spiritual journey started. And then I, I thought well, rightly or wrongly, like a lot of people that you, you know, well, I guess now I got to study theology, not a particularly good reason, but that's what happened. So that's what I did. Then I had a sort of intellectual conversion and, and decided I really wanted to take this a lot further. Went to England, did my research there, 
PhD and so on, became a professor. Eventually, I was, uh, quote unquote, headhunted into in, into Minnesota, and this is where I live. Oh, great. Okay, so in uh, your but you're so you're teaching. Do you teach? Uh, I don't know if you do you teach at Bethel. Is that where you teach at? I was at Bethel for many years, okay. and um, I, I they, I they were that. the they were the ones who who brought me over from England um, because before that gotcha. I was a university prof in England. Um, there came a point at, at at Bethel where I wanted to um, to do things differently, you know, and and um, uh. I think education is 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 in some trouble. It's also ridiculously expensive, and Indeed. we can solve both of these problems at the same time but you can hardly ever do that from inside an institution because they're not up for that uh, right. they want to keep going as smoothly as possible and that wasn't really what i was looking for so eventually i i started doing my own thing but then another school came along and gotcha. hired me to in, uh, basically reconceive theological education for them and i did that on a three-year contract and then after that i went more or less self-employed which is part of my approach to <laughs> to theological education yep. uh, but i'm still a phd advisor i have uh, phd students through a university in england so i i've been doing that for years i help uh, gifted uh, scholars to get their phds their british phds through me without wow. having to move there i still do that Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. So that's uh, yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to wanted to know, and then we'll we'll dive into kind of the rest of your story, and then mm -hmm. come back here because I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had about theological education, education in general, um, and and particularly I want to talk about hermeneutics because I know it's one of your your main uh, things, and it's really really important how we how we read. I know. Uh, well, I'll tell you I'll tell you a little bit about myself as we go. So. Uh, so growing up in Germany, what was that like for you? Like what, what's, uh, you know, was it, it sounds like you weren't a Christian until you came to the United States. So what, what was, you know, was, what was your family like? What was sort of the ethos there? Well, I grew up in a, in one of those picturesque little, uh, small towns in the black forest, the, the, the kind uh -huh. of place where later in life, when I brought students, American students to my hometown in Germany, because, Heck, why not? Um, they they would stand there, mouths wide open, and say, "These places really exist." That's <laughs> you know, that's one of those incredibly old and picturesque uh, places. That's where I grew up, and and life was pretty easy there. I know, kind of uneventful. I mean, you know, we, uh, as far as the the Christian side is concerned, um, we um, about forty percent of the population are Catholic, and about uh 55 percent i guess are lutheran and about five percent are are nothing and 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 um they uh my my parents were the kind of people fairly classic for that um for that town for that period uh people who you know they grew up after the second world war or even in the midst of it and they learn to survive and part of survival is to have certain structures in life and church functioned along those lines so you kind of grew up a quote-unquote good lutheran and um and that's pretty much as far as it went and and therefore it wasn't a big deal for the youth group to ask me to be their leader without ever asking where i stood spiritually they just the fact that i started going there because i i, I met these people was almost enough you know it's that kind of culture christianity thing yeah almost. 
That's exactly the words I was thinking uh, just mm-hmm. now is like, it sounds like it was a cultural Christianity sort of Lutherans and I like right. good Lutherans. Yeah. Which makes sense. You kind of go to church and do the thing, but maybe there's just, it's just part of your life, right? It's not really like a personal relationship. Would you say that? Yes, that, that is true. Um, and, and it's interesting how different factors play into this. I mean, in my case, it was not some amazing like conversion experience or whatever. I'm, I'm somebody who, uh, when I do something, I really go after it. Um, mm. I will not uh, do uh, like I built this this house I'm sitting in. I phys- physically built it, so I bought the excavator, uh, you know, as an example. <laughs> wow! Uh, and I rented some other stuff, but I, I, so in my case, once I had agreed to uh, to be involved in that youth group and 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 lead the uh, the, the various groups, the the youth work. Um, you know, I, I really got into it uh, full steam. And, and part of that was getting better at reading the Bible. And and so I kind of grew into this whole Christian role. There wasn't there wasn't a day, there wasn't an experience per se um, that happened, uh, nor did it have to happen in that environment, because nobody would really ask you for that, because mm. it's not that kind of, you know, denomination or Christian environment right. where you get asked that. Which, see, I think that's really interesting because that's one of my goals on this show is to demonstrate the spiritual journey. So mm-hmm. I sometimes say the spiritual journey, the Christian journey, is wider, deeper, and longer than you've been told, right? Like there's more there's more yeah. to it than when I was a kid, it was uh, my life was terrible, then I met Jesus, and now my life is great, right? Which is fine yeah. except for all the other things that happen. So, yeah. um, so I love those stories where uh, you know, I, I love to ask about an individual, like a moment. Sometimes people have really deep, you know, moments, but I love stories like yours where it was just sort of a, it was a thing you grew into. Right. And you, you yeah. knew, you knew God was there. Maybe you, or you were kind of in pursuing him, but right. he's also pursuing you. That's right. And, and then there was another uh, component to this uh, that some might say is still uh, shining through in my life today, <laughs> which is that there was a bit of a bifurcation happening in this church. You have to imagine a, a small village of 3,000 where about um, half half the population is Lutheran. But even over 100 years ago, a church was built that was about four or five times too big and too expensive. And it actually ruined much of the population in, in that, oh, wow. in, in that town. Um, but now you have this massive church and you need to keep that thing going. And then there is the, there are the youth groups, um, including myself. And we're, we consider ourselves at the time to be the, the, the lively part of church, you know, the, the ones who, who really expect that a walk with Jesus makes a difference in your life. But the institution isn't like that. To us, young folk, you know, the institution seemed um, uh, sort of stale and 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 um, a little too self-important and all the rest of it. So we developed into a bunch of uh, sort of iconoclasts, if you if you mm-hmm. will. And so there was always that, that slightly jarring relationship, um, you know, with the the leadership on the one hand um who are playing the institutional game and then us on the other hand so so that also played into the whole journey so it's really quite interesting yeah that is interesting um okay so you so you come to the united states what made you want to come to the united states in the that program i i did not uh oh you mean as an exchange student when i was 16 yeah. do you mean later mm-hmm. um 16 um yeah when you were 16 
When I was 16, um, <laughs> it, it also just happened. Uh, so I wasn't planning it. As, as much as I told you that I will really get into something, I'll go after it once I decide to, you know, that I'm in. Um, I'm not a great planner either. It's just when I happen to be in and find myself in a situation that I think I should commit to, then I go after it. But I didn't really yeah. plan for it to happen. So so what, what did happen, though, was um, I was a a decent enough high school student, but nothing great. But then I I was in um, in 10th grade and in Germany at the time, high school actually uh, had 13 years, uh, 13 years in total um, of school education. So I had, I had uh, three more years to go. But during during 10th grade, I, um, I just uh, kind of, I guess I let my hair down. I actually did have uh, long hair and uh, we were all, we were all like, hippies i suppose i and i didn't do anything for school and i nosedived i mean it was really bad however my way out of that this is this is so silly but uh this is exactly what happened my way out of that was not to start studying harder but <laughs> to take up my english teacher who kind of jovially threw this into the discussion one day and said hey there's this exchange student uh program and and there's this uh organization they're called afs and you can go to another country and there are other kids from other countries that come to germany and everyone stays with a host family for a year and i thought cool let's do this i told my parents and they told me later that they were convinced that with my bad grades the fact that i was technically too young for the program and i applied late that's three strikes and i was never going to be selected only a few kids got selected well guess what? I got selected and I was off to Pennsylvania. And for me, it was like, all right, well, I guess let's go. Let's go. So that's how that <laughs> happened. So I, I didn't, I, w I wasn't even looking. I mean, United States, it could have been any country with English because that was my better non-German language, you know, better uh -huh. than French. And France is right next door anyway. So why would I go there when I can go to New Zealand or the US or Australia or someplace? Right, right. Yeah, because you can just drive there, right, to France. It's, it's... Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we ride there in, uh, in, in our bicycles with a tent for the weekend, you know, and go camping. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I've, I've, I've never been to Europe, but I, I'd love to go someday. But mm -hmm. the way I conceive of it, it sounds like it's more like our states, the way we do states. You know, they're pretty close. Um, oftentimes, in some mm -hmm. countries, right? They're not, they're not as big as they seem. No, they're not as big, but the but the, the the countries over there are more different from each other yeah. than the states are different from each other here. So in that sense, uh, the comparison doesn't work, but that but size wise it does. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That sounds good. Okay. So interesting. So you come to the United States and you're you get invited to lead this youth group, which you like you were you were good Lutheran. So, uh, like how take tell me that story. Like how did you start? You started to study and. You know, maybe it wasn't a moment, but was there a time when you realized all of a sudden, like, oh, actually, I do, I do believe all this stuff, or was how'd that go? Um, it, it, it wasn't certainly, certainly wasn't suddenly. Um, there's a piece to my year in the U.S. that had uh, played a role in in this. Um, they put me in the senior year in high school here, uh, in in the U.S. And they also put me on the football team because I was a European kid who could kick a ball. And in those days, American <laughs> kickers kicked straight, which is a physical impossibility. And there's a reason nobody does that anymore. Um, but so and I, I, I got a uh, scholarship. I got scholarship offers from Penn State and 
places, but I couldn't take them. I had to leave the country. You have to leave the country for one year at the end of your year before you can come back. They don't want kids to stay like kids from poorer countries and so on. So anyway, so I went to Germany. I was a little disappointed. I couldn't take up the scholarship. Uh, Germany said, uh, okay, did you enjoy your year? You did. That's wonderful. And now uh, uh, back to school. Basically, we're not giving you any credit. You have another three years. And then I graduated from high school again three oh, years wow. later. That is crazy. And um, but that's what happened. So as I'm processing all of this, this other thing happened that I told you about the youth group. And I think I was as I was trying to navigate who I am, even intellectually, uh, the, the youth group situation almost happened as a bit of a filler experience for me. But then I really went after it. And I, you know, I, I wanted to get better at biblical interpretation and I mm -hmm. wanted to see why I was having these instincts that this institutional thing wasn't, in my opinion, <laughs> not quite the way to go um, yep. and, and so on. So, so that's when the journey started. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So you, you dive in and you're studying theology and then you decided to go, did you go to college or how did you, you I, Germany, to do Germany doesn't really do college. You're, you're in high school a bit okay. longer. Um, the school system is uh, in some ways goes deeper. I mean, the U S I don't mean this in a, in a, in a judgmental way, but the U S school system is the lowest common denominator system. Um, mm -hmm. And Germany is kind of the opposite. It's, it's more sort of layered and, and you go where you're, um, well, hopefully you go where your gifting takes you. Um, and then you go, you go quite a bit uh, deeper, depending what kind of school uh, you choose to go to. Um, but then it means you also don't have college because there's not such a gap between the end of high mm. school and university. You kind of you slide right over into into the other. That's different from the U.S. Yeah, uh, so call, the college system is not needed in in Germany. So I went uh, straight to a theological school in Germany, but it happened to be one of the very few that was somewhat narrow minded. I did not realize that. I did not know what that meant. I kind of came to know those things while I was there. That itself is pretty transformative when you're inside of something that you value on the one hand a great deal, but on the other hand, you're becoming intellectually suspicious of it. And that's what happened to me. That's when I decided that I wanted to, I, I was going to finish it. I'm not someone who walks away from something, you know, like halfway through the program. I finished <laughs> it. But then I wanted to continue and do actual research, and I wanted to do it in another country to get a different perspective. I'd already lived in another country. So then I went to England, and that's where I did my research and became a yeah. professor, which I didn't think I would. I never had plans to become a professor. That kind of happened, too. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> Everything happened. What, what were some things you were looking at and going, hey, this is this is a, this is a little restrictive here? This is like, a, well, what were the things that you're suspicious of? Well, there were all kinds of opinions being shared in that school, and academically it was at a high level, but there were opinions being shared and supposedly supported with biblical evidence that just did not work. And, and um, you know, even you didn't have to be a hermeneutical genius to figure out that this, this isn't really working. Some, some of these viewpoints that are being divulged here, as if they were biblical viewpoints, that that isn't working. You, you, the, you just, you scratch the surface a little bit and, and, and you realize that this is at best special pleading at, at worst, it's uh it's a, a sort of an, a running ideological roughshod over, over the Bible. 
And uh, so, so for instance, um, gender roles uh, in, in Christianity, um, or um, that particular school happened to be, and this is extremely rare in Germany. Germany is not a dispensationalist country. The U.S. is. Uh, in terms of the Christian world, um, to a to a large extent, but that school was sponsored, pretty much by the same people that sponsored the Super Bowl at the other day. You oh, know, yeah. he gets mm-hmm. us. I, I want to do a video about that. Um, <laughs> basically, the, the the Hobby Lobby uh, uh, rich people of this world sponsored ultimately indirectly that kind of school, and and so I I felt increasingly uh, indoctrinated with without the evidence being. Uh, being supplied, and that caught my attention. Now I have to look behind the scenes. It's a little bit like if you went to a theater, and you're seeing the the performance, and it's not quite what you expected, but it it, it holds enough of your interest that when the theater performance on stage is over, you find a way of exploring behind that curtain at the back and what's happening in the rafters and and what about that orchestra underneath the stage, and and now you're going 3D. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that's that was my experience at that school, and so I had to go further. And I knew I wasn't going to get it with from those professors, and I knew I wasn't going to get it at that school. So I chose carefully to uh, get a master's in England because England had this reputation, or, or Britain, uh, both uh, this this reputation that uh, you uh, you're, you're less doctrinally driven and you're more driven. Mm by doing what they might call analytical philosophy. Ultimately, I, I saw issues with that as well, but it was way better than what I had. So it was an important stepping stone for me to go there and do that. So I, I went to London. And then I never thought, even at that point, I would get a PhD, but my professors there recommended me to go to uh, the University of London and then Cambridge and, and, and get my PhD. So, so that also happened. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so how do you view that? Do you see that as like providence? Do you see like God directing you to do these things, or how do you? Yeah, I, you know, I mean, that's that's one way to talk about it. I have no problem with that. Uh, I will say this though, and this is a, a an epistemological point for for those mm-hmm. not familiar with that that term. It's about knowledge. It's about how humans deal with knowledge, and um, and the epistemological point in this case is this. When we talk about any interaction between the divine and us, uh, we acknowledge, I hope, that there is a some some sort of qualitative difference. Otherwise, we're just mirroring ourselves, right? We're just like looking into the mirror and calling the thing that we're seeing God. And that's not what we're doing, right? So, so we when mm-hmm. we talk about the divine, we acknowledge that there is another category at work that is above our pay grade epistemologically and in light of all that and 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 some of your listeners may say and i i totally get that and and you may say this too um yeah. may say wait why why are you complicating this well i'm not complicating it i'm in many ways pointing out the obvious that Christians are so great at ignoring. So when we talk about things like providence, we have images of providence in our mind that are ultimately utterly human, but Mm -hmm. we apply them to the divine, and we're thereby actually pulling the divine into our experience. We're, We're making God sort of more human, but not by following God 
having become human in Jesus, but by redesigning God in our image. Do, do you see what I mean? Uh, the, yep. That that is the piece where I think we ha- we have to be careful. Um, putting it very simply, I would say this: Christians have the often, uh, and it's to some extent a cultural thing, and certainly prevalent in, in this culture here. Um, let's say many Christians um, have this sort of propensity um, to to try and relate to God, not so much through Jesus and who Jesus actually was and what Jesus actually taught and 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 so on, but more by using what one might consider rightly or wrongly um, the so-called appropriate language by applying the, the the appropriate human language to God and and then uh, putting a fence around that and making other people agree to that. And that's that's an issue because now we're we're redefining God around our own categories. So yeah. um, is it providence? Sure, but to say it's it's providence, like your back to your question, um, that's if we understand that metaphorically, yes. As okay. a sort of symbolic way of saying, well, there, there's something divine going on here in my life, I think, in my community, I think, in yours as well, I think. Uh, to, to, to understand it as a metaphorical uh, um, statement about that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and, and that means that we have to be humble around our claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people become too specific and too forceful and they... They kind of, you know, then, then, then the danger is that the the next step is they claim particular authority because God called them, quote unquote, and that's where I think it gets dangerous. And institutions will leverage that um, all day long, and <laughs> I think that's troubling. Well, you're not kidding. Yeah, that that is true, and I would love to talk about that a little bit because, um, but maybe we'll come back to it because it because it is. In fact, I know we will. So that that is like a the institution thing and the power, like that's a big deal that particularly American Christianity is dealing with right, right now. It sounds like you, you feel, feel like God was just leading you on these things. And that's where you discovered kind of who you, this, your ability. I also hear you saying um, you're, you've maybe always been a little bit skeptical of institutions. Is that true? Um, not, not always, but ever since I started thinking, maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. You know, as a as a kid, so so I'm I'm I was confirmed um, in in the in the Lutheran Church, and so I went to confirmation class and and all that. At that point, I um I was not skeptical of the institution. I thought it was boring. I I, mm. I still think that. Um, I, I, Christian institutions by and large bore me. Uh, I'll admit to that. That goes back uh, a, a long, a long time, but and that probably started by having to sit there, um, you know, looking up, sure. literally up at the pulpit up there. It's a huge church, remember? Way too big, mm-hmm. hardly any people there. You're looking up. The, the 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 pastor walks up this spiral staircase and then towers above you and delivers. Uh, this this sermon to you, and as a kid, I thought that was just the most boring thing in the world. So so that I admit to in in the sense of I've always felt that. Um, but the piece that you're asking about the 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 sort of more um, 
intellectually infused um, <laughs> approach to the question of institutionality that actually came later. That that okay. came that came about because um, because the the school I went to after high school to study theology was, as I described uh, it earlier, gotcha. it was yeah, yeah. somewhat fundamentalist. It was. It, it 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 was a thinly disguised fundamentalism, and the the disguise took the shape of something they called hermeneutics, but it wasn't hermeneutics. Right. Um, it was, uh, I think, indoctrination, and that really got me going because I then started asking myself, "Wait, is okay. it just this school?" Well, actually, no, and it's not conservative versus mm. liberal either because they all do it. <laughs> it's yeah. it's more inherently in the institution. It's this control thing. That Christians apparently have decided by majority that they want to go for a managed uh, humanity, and that's the opposite of what I saw in the New Testament. That's what really got me going. Right. Like, so isn't it? If Jesus brings freedom, why yeah. are we trying to bring, you know, manipulation and control? Absolutely. It makes. But you me know, crazy. if I say that, Eric, if I say that on TikTok, you should, you should see the comments. I have, I have, because you're right. Because, I, and I think people people don't get it because they they're in it, right? And they and they're yeah. believing that this is what is an essential part of their experience of God, right? Is this is this community? Absolutely, and you know what that makes me think, and has made me think for many years, and has fascinated me. Instead of doing a good interpretive job and then saying, "All right." Um, there may be issues with how we do things relative to how Christianity started. Instead of doing that, we we actually replace that that interpretive piece with another um, a, a another tendency that is counteractive to good interpretation. It is defense. It mm -hmm. is defense. And so we have you go to seminary uh, and seminaries have courses called apologetics i have a book here there's a reason for that because on tiktok i promised to do book reviews and if i didn't like the book i'd fire up remember i have this excavating equipment still from building the house i'd yeah. fire up one of them dig a deep hole and i'll ceremoniously <laughs> bury the book in four tons of dirt so i'm going to do that on tiktok but but i have a book over here and it talks about the title is something like dialogical apologetics and it sounds cool but it's not it's it's a it's you you've just replaced good interpretation with defense and that goes to the heart of this institutional thing and that's why the people in the comments on tiktok who don't like me having a go at the institution not the people in the institution but the systemic institution mm -hmm. that's yep. why they come out of the woodwork not because they're good interpreters they're not they come out because they think they're good defenders whether they are is another matter Right. Some are, right. some are not. <laughs> yeah, I I think that's so right, and it's interesting that that's what, so much part of our language is defending the gospel. You'll hear that, oh. or you'll see a book, or you know, uh, and I'm the uh, gospel doesn't need to be defended, guys. It's you know, it's it's the work God's doing. It's the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't even feel like he had to defend the kingdom of God to Pilate, right? Like he just was exactly. like exactly not oh, interested, not interested in defending himself. Did he attack the institution? He sure as heck did. Yeah. Absolutely. But he didn't defend a thing. The New Testament isn't interested in it, but people go to, you know, to 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 Peter and uh, first Peter and may, maybe right. Timothy, and they find a little fragment somewhere where they rip it out of 
context and they turn it into this uh this little fortune cookie and they say look at this we're supposed to be good defenders of the faith no yeah. you just made that up <laughs> you just carried that into the bible well i also think we add some um some sort of enlightenment uh ideas to that as well, right? That it has to be this yeah. sort of academic, reasonable kind of way yeah. of, of thinking about it. So one of the one of my goals with this show, although we're, we're being a little more philosophical here, is to show the experience of it, right? Because that's that's mm-hmm. what I was always kind of fascinated right. by. What was my experience of God? Because it varies as widely as people do, right? It's just, it's very, yes. very different. It can be very different. Um, and yet they're all, I think, I think it's valid and they're interesting to hear. And so my hope is that by the time we get done, I've, I've committed to doing 10 years of this show. So 500 episodes. So we'll get, uh, but my, <laughs> my goal is that when we're done people, there'd be this big record of what life with God was like in the 21st century. Right. And mm-hmm. that'll be kind of the, the mm-hmm. interesting uh, thing. So uh, anyway, so that's where I, but that's where I come at it. And I think it's a different kind of apologetic in its own way, right. For how, God interacts with people or people interact with, with God. Well, yes. And, and this is, this is the thing, you know, I mentioned briefly the Super Bowl ad uh, the other day, um, you know, he gets us where um, people who look at this from an apologetic perspective, the kind that I, uh, that I outlined, not as you just described your own, uh, your own venture, but what I talked about a minute ago, uh, they will look at it and they they see that and they're immediately nervous if this ad is giving if it's yielding too much to maybe progressive mm-hmm. Christians you know who are concerned for the welfare of people right. <laughs> and the fact that be, that some Christians would even be concerned about that is itself very telling and 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 a big big problem but then my my view of looking at something like like um, like that ad that shows the social edge of Jesus, my my suspicion, my concern is is kind of goes in the opposite direction. Um, is is this not just a way of reeling people in, knowing that people are interested in social justice issue and issues, and then once they're in, once they're in our institutions, like the ones that sponsored the ad, you know, then they then it's back to the old stuff, you know. Yeah, like yeah. you have to. You have to uh, think of faith not really as an experiential thing, since you mentioned experience, but you have to think of faith as a, a sort of a, um, a checking the right boxes in terms of claims you make, theological mm-hmm. right, claims. Right, right. And then I, that's where I, I'm, uh, you know, that, that's where my concern lies. But, but that's not what you're doing. I don't know you well, but you're clearly from what I'm hearing from you, that that is not what you're doing. You're not using the term apologetic in that sense, but more in the no. sense of documenting an experiential side of Christianity or Absolutely. many experiential sides. Yeah, that exactly. So I, I think it's, uh, I, like I said, I want people to know that God shows up in a lot of different ways and you just right. need to keep your, keep your eyes open and, right. mm-hmm. and, and watch that. So absolutely. Okay. Well, I'm interested. I want to hear, so I have one more question I want to ask, and then I do want to go into some of what you're doing with uh warehouse theology yep. and uh, talk about hermeneutics a little bit because it's, it's a huge deal uh, that is really, really important. Um, but 
So one question that I asked that is an experiential question is whether or not you've ever experienced what John LaCrosse called a dark night of the soul, right? Or a spiritual desert or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, how you maybe made sense of that or, you know, uh, experienced God in that, in that season. And if not, it's okay. But I'm, I'm curious about, about your experience. So people, uh, you know, people who know me well, uh, friends and former students who are, who are still in touch and so on they they always say rightly or wrongly that i'm the i'm the stoic german and you know like i'm i'm <laughs> i'm i may get into it in terms of the the written rhetorics of it <laughs> yep. I, I, love, I love a good argument as much as the next person or more um, but I'm not somebody who's I, I'm putting it differently as a as a as a an even keel kind of person. Yep. I it's not easy for me to imagine myself into the role of people who find themselves in those dark places. Now I'm in no shape or form ruling out that I may find myself in those places too. Um, but, but, but so far I, you know, it's, I, I look at that and I'm, this is why I would be a a terrible, uh, therapist. I think I, I I wouldn't (laughs) have the, the ability to imagine myself into those dark places quite as much as would probably be necessary. And that's a big hermeneutical thing. That's actually a a hermeneutical shortcoming, I think, because interpretation requires the imagining of oneself into the other, including what we might call the implied author of the text as opposed to the empirical author. But that's another more technical thing, but it's a very important one. So, so, I talk about those things. I know a lot about those things from an interdisciplinary perspective, cultural anthropology, psychology, neuroscience, uh, sociology, and so on. But that experiential piece, that is where I always feel a little bit distant. And I think this is what people are expressing sometimes when they kind of say, wink, wink, you know, he's the stoic. German. Mm, yeah. So I'm I'm pro I'm not the greatest person really to 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 ask about that from an experiential perspective. Um, if you were to ask me though, how does trauma function uh, in terms of different disciplines explaining trauma and hermeneutics, right, right. which is what I'm into bringing it together, then I'm in my element, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, I don't. I don't quite know. I. I don't quite know what what to say there. But sure, that's I okay. Seen in my own family, I can tell you my my dad, who was who never. There's never any drama in his life ever. He was never sick. I don't remember him ever having the flu. But he um, one day uh, he was in his late fifties. He had um, he collapsed at work, and turns out he had colon cancer. And they, this little dinky hospital in the Black Forest, instead of the big university clinic, where I'm pretty sure he'd still be alive. Now, this this is where we oh, could wow. also ask the providence question, but I'm not yeah, yeah. proposing we go back there. But anyway, um, I think they messed it up. And long story short, it spread, and he died. The first time he got sick, he died. And mm. my parents always had a great 
marriage and they were wonderful together and suddenly he's gone. And then my mother has since then, and this is decades ago, because they, well, she's in her 80s now and he, he would have been in his 80s. Um, she has gone into, into that dark place mm. of the soul and has struggled ever since then in terms of emerging from it. Yeah. And so that's, that's an extremely tough, tough thing to see and to, to witness, not only because your mother and because of the trauma involved there, uh, but because um, she is someone who devoted her life to helping others. So yeah. that ra raised the question of why. Right, <laughs> right. But, you know, that's where I know that no matter how intellectual my approach to this and that and the other thing might be, I know my limits. And the why mm. question will not be answered, at least not in this human dimension here. So, yeah, so I'm careful. I don't go very far in terms of making claims about these things. Yeah, which is interesting. So that sounds like a, I mean, it's a tough thing to witness, as you said, and it's a hard thing to kind of make sense of, right, as a as a person who, you know, has to deal with the the difficulty in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you for, for that. And uh, it's, it's all good. So uh, I do want to go into, I want you to tell us a little bit about kind of what you do with um, warehouse theology. I think it's really yeah. fascinating. I think also we should, we got to talk a little bit about hermeneutics because Mm -hmm. uh, that was what really fascinated me. So we had an exchange one time on, on, uh, TikTok, which you may or may not remember, but about, you were talking about how seminaries just don't even really teach hermeneutics anymore. And I was like, well, I went to some good schools and, uh, I went to, so I went to Trinity, uh, mm -hmm. and did my, did my, uh, I did my undergrad there in biblical studies. And then I went to, I did a year and a half at Ted's, uh, mm -hmm. I was close to um, Grant Osborne or knew him and, and, and mm -hmm. took him in some classes. So, and then uh, came out here to Denver to finish up. That's how I ended up out, out in the sunny uh, mountain West. But, uh, but yeah, it, so, but it is a big deal and I think we need to talk about it. So I would love to hear about kind of your thoughts on that. Well, this is, this is very interesting. The Ted's thing, um, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Ted's. Uh, so, so you mentioned Grant Osborne, and as far as uh, hermeneutics is concerned, uh, there's also Don Carson, of course, yep. there, and and Kevin Van Hooser. Oh yeah, and I had him too. Oh my goodness, that class. Yep. Was... <laughs> so so I know all three of them personally, but Carson the least. Uh, Don Carson, he um, the least of them. I know. I used to know Grant, who passed away a few years ago, yeah. but he, I, I used to know him very well because he taught, he he came to Germany uh, during a sabbatical year. He chose to, um, he and his wife came to Germany and spent oh, yeah. their sabbatical year there. And then he was invited to be guest guest professor and teach hermeneutics at the school that I mentioned earlier in Germany. And I was his interpreter for Germany. So oh, cool. I Anything and everything he ever taught in Germany, wherever and whatever, I would be there and I would do the life interpretations, you know. And if he preached at a church, then I two microphones oh, yeah. and there's Osborne and there's Moritz. And he's the one who played a major role in getting me into in, into uh uh, into hermeneutics, I I, oh, I got to read his manuscript, the Hermeneutical Spiral, before it became the book, and that was all very fascinating. Yeah. 
Um, Got it right up there. Yeah. Uh, I, I have his original, uh, I, I have photocopies of, of his original hand-typed manuscript that in one of my, I, my library's big, it's like three, three rooms, but in one of them I have that, and I still do. Uh, so Grant was important uh, for me, and, and, um, and he was one of the first evangelicals that I certainly came across that started looking at, at, at the philosophical uh, piece of, of of hermeneutics. Now, that is the piece that most seminaries do not take care of. Now, uh, Don Carson, and, and it's kind of interesting, you were at the one school that had a bunch of people interested in hermeneutics, but Don Carson, for instance, who wrote things like exegetical fallacies, which oh, is yep, good as that. far as it goes, except he also commits fallacies in the book called exegetical fallacies, but he doesn't seem to either want to hear about it or he's he, he can't see it there's a lot that is good in that book but he commits some fallacies himself and that is because he doesn't take uh hermeneutics to a what i would call a a sort of proper epistemological or critical realist type level if he did he would not have written some stuff that he wrote in that book. Overall, I would give that book a B, and two thirds of it might deserve an A, and and one third maybe a C minus is is my view. Uh, I told him that once; he was not pleased. <laughs> he was. He, that's funny. Uh, yeah, that's, he came to awesome. school I, here. I, and so, the, uh, Dr. Osborne is or uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Carson, Carson. Was, was the one that I. I never really did take with him. So I had, I had Grant Osborne. His daughter was one of our friends. He was married to one of my friends. And so we were friends with them. And so we, I, I remember watching the world series at Osborne's house one time. I did take Van Hooser in a class. that was like Holy spirit church and last things. We spent most of it on the church, two weeks on the Holy spirit and like one and a half sessions on last things. I was like, what are you doing? That's not cool. Anyway, <laughs> it, it was crazy. But Dr. Carson's one that I didn't get, but yeah, his, 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 Great guy, but his reputation is being is a little bit, uh, you know. But I can see why he wouldn't be amused by that. How about that? <laughs> you see, I I even uh, I even met Kevin a few times because I was part of a ten ten year hermeneutics project called Scripture and Hermeneutics Project S A H P that was published by, um, uh, well, there are a number of of different uh, publishers actually and editors. But anyway, so for ten years. A group of about 25 scholars that included Kevin and myself, we would meet one year in England and one year in the States. We'd go back and yeah. forth. And with Kevin, I always wondered, I thought, Kevin, you're really into the philosophical side of it. Uh, why Why the heck aren't you interpreting a thing ever? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it was a it was so now was, you have he, my take on, on all three there you go. <laughs> He would not he would not even recognize me because uh, I'm I was so out of my element in those classes. I was way and then that's that's about the time when I uh say I began I ended up leaving in two thousand two uh at, for what I say was a dark it was my dark night of the soul. So it was three years, two kids and one dark night of the soul. I just needed to take a break. My parents yep. were getting divorced. There were a lot of things. And then when I wanted to come back, I was like, I need something different. And Denver had something a little bit different, like a more men, more of a mentoring program that I was I was looking for. But anyway, yeah, that is that was fascinating that you know all these guys and uh, and know of them. So let's talk about specifically hermeneutics. Like mm -hmm. this is you know biblical interpretation, how we how we interpret 
uh, and I'm sorry that I've only left just a few minutes at the end here for us to talk about this, but this is, um, maybe we could do it, do a different one, but the, uh, this is like really critical for how Christians, I think, experience God and experience and read the Bible. When the only thing that we tell people is read your Bible and pray, how we read the Bible really, really matters. So uh, talk about like what that, you know, how the average Christian can like start to develop their hermeneutical understanding. Well, I, I think uh, my take on that really starts with the observation that um, we have unlearned the ability to read, um, especially the Bible. We're probably not very good readers in general these days for recent social media and whatnot. But but even well before that, when it comes to the Bible, we've reduced it to a collection of um, what I would call fortune cookies. We've We've kind of destroyed it. It starts with uh, the the fact that of the 66 books, technically it's not 66 because some of them are two volumes of a single book. But leaving that aside, let's call it 66. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like Luke and Acts, they're two I volumes know. of the same book. Uh, they're one book. They're not two books. But anyway, let's stick with the 66. Um, so if we, um, if we go with 66, we've completely disempowered the authors of the 66 by insisting that it's really one book, and those are just 66 chapters thereof. So what can Christians do? The first thing, the very first thing is a very simple thing, is to start with a realization that we shouldn't focus on the big thing. And in that sense, the Bible, if we want to honor the the content of the Bible, we need to honor each book. And we need to start reading each book as one thing. Now, sometimes some New Testament books specifically refer back to the Old Testament. So, so this would be another step in terms of someone getting into hermeneutics practically is this kind of stuff that I talk about on warehouse yep. theology, um, for instance. Uh, so, so you go to the Gospels. Let's take, let's just take Mark's Gospel for the moment. Luke is the same, um, by the way, as far as this this point goes. Uh, Jesus in those two Gospels, more than in the other two, somewhat in Matthew, John's a bit different, but um, um, Jesus, as uh, referenced in those Gospels, will go back to Isaiah in the Old Testament time and again, and to certain Psalms as well, like Psalm 110. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in Isaiah, it's mostly the servant Psalms. Uh, that the Gospels go back to. So what they're doing there is they're taking a, an, what in the Old Testament, we used to have this Exodus motif. I mean, Israel, um, you know, uh, uh, being uh, um, Israel, have, having experiencing the Exodus and, and getting away from, from Egypt and salvation happening in that very real life kind of way. And then the prophets later, like Isaiah coming along and saying, you know what, something like that, but even greater lies in our future, if only we take this God's people calling thing more seriously. And that is exactly where Jesus anchors his own ministry, and he keeps pointing back. Now, if we commit to reading individual books, let's say the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, and we say, look at that. Um, There is all kinds of Isaiah material happening here, quotations from Isaiah. Now I need to go back and I'm going to read Isaiah 
and and now we're starting to read we're actually starting to read mm-hmm. instead of this overarching bible approach thing where we're now feel free almost as if this were some magical something magical embedded in the bible where we can take a verse from here and a verse from there yes. and i noticed jalen hurts the eagles quarterback um you know that in in the super bowl um I don't know if it was right after that or not. It doesn't matter. Um, but but he said something about in his life because they asked him. I think they asked. They may have asked him about about the loss and how he deals with it or something like that. And I think he said John thirteen seven is particularly important to him. I actually have to look it up right now. Uh, something about understand. Isn't that the passage about understanding fully and you you don't understand? Oh, sure. Yeah. And and I'm thinking on the one hand I'm thinking hey great great and you're also a fantastic quarterback on the other hand i'm thinking who taught you to just rip something out of john and make it its own thing what i call a fortune cookie yes you know are we are we going to serve it and i'm not criticizing jalen hurts here at all i'm just using him as an example because he's prominent Uh, are we going to wrap this up now and give it to people at dinner parties like a christian fortune cookie that's not reading so the first thing we need to do is we need to recover this notion of reading and taking each Mm. book in the bible seriously by itself that's that's one there are many other steps of course i love that friends one of the things you can do is follow that that breadcrumb trail, right? So like is, is what I hear you say. This is an academic pursuit. I learned to do that, you know, in school, but you go and you, so just like you're saying, you read, read Mark and then you read, oh, I need to understand this book and then maybe understand another book, right? Because Isaiah doesn't come from nowhere either, right? He's pulling on Correct. themes from Exodus. Exodus, from, yeah. Right. But lots of other places. Yeah. Um, he's talking about the exile. So you probably need to know some of mm-hmm. Israel's history and understand those things. Mm-hmm. You got to, so you need to understand the big story, but you got to understand all the different sections and parts of it. Correct. And that is so really valuable. I applaud people who want to read through the Bible in a year, but sometimes, so do that once and then like dive in mm-hmm. and dive in, pick, pick a book. I one time spent a whole year in Mark, actually, just mm-hmm. reading Mark every day and going through and just, and meditating on it and letting, you know, mm-hmm. that, that being my, I think you can do that. It's really, um, really powerful. Okay. So what you're doing at Warehouse Theology, uh, which is warehousetheology.com, you mm-hmm. are, t- tell us, describe that for us, and then uh, and then we'll wrap up. I'll tell you why it's called Warehouse Theology. So after I, I was done, at least for the time being, and I might go back and teach at a university again, I'm not certainly not ruling that out, but after I, I was done in order to 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 do this other thing, I actually rented space in a in a warehouse, one of those cool warehouses in, in the warehouse district in Minneapolis where there were other startups, photographers and and, and whatnot. And Tesla oh, yeah. did some launch there and whatever. And we shared space. And and so warehouse theology at one level is about completely reconceiving theological education and saying we don't need a campus. We don't need to spend uh, about 52% of, of what students pay to study somewhere on maintaining a campus and having vans and this and that and the other. We don't need that. We can rent a space and share it with other startups and whatnot. And we're actually now doing something in the midst of the world instead of withdrawing from it to some campus, you know, some compound. And and so that's how warehouse theology started. And that's why it's called warehouse theology. And, and, um, um, but I, um, and then COVID happened and so on. And, and, 
became more oh. of a digital thing. But yep. um, so people can um, people can get a membership of Warehouse Theology. Uh, just you know, go to the website or or, or find me um, on TikTok or through your podcast or or YouTube. Um, the handle is Prohibition Theology. There's another story behind that. Prohibition Theology. Uh, and 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 you can if you if people have more questions about it, but that's how warehouse theology first happened. Now I travel a ton. The idea is to decentralize theological education. If people mm -hmm. want me to be somewhere and to help them do stuff, especially metros, because there are more people that we can bring together and we can rent something. If we don't have a space, maybe we yeah. do have a space. It could be a church. Who knows? Or we rent something. We don't need campuses. We don't need plane loads of people coming to a, an expensive campus that does almost nothing for yeah. us, except being a ball and chain. Um, so Warehouse Theology reversed all that and it's about making theology and good hermeneutics, good interpretation available to people. That's that's kind of it. So go to warehousetheology.com to learn more about it. Um, I'm actually going to transition all that to another platform called Kajabi. Uh, I will oh, yeah. also start uh, Patreon very soon, also handle Prohibition Theology, and then people can um, choose various. I think you do Patreon, right? I, I do both Patreon and Kajabi. So let's oh, and Kajabi. That. Okay, uh, if, you, I should, if you're interested, I should. Uh, I, I might need your help. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's do that. I love it. So, friends, uh, you can find that warehousetheology.com, and of course, always at halfwaytherepodcast.com is all the links. I've got everything that we talked about there. Uh, you know, just linked up there. So you just go go find it. Uh, Torsten, can you just tell us? Like, is there anything you want to leave us with about about this? We we covered a, a broad. I, a number of things, but the one thing I'd like I'd like to say that to my mind is absolutely crucial for being human, uh, and actually not just for Christians, but it should be even more crucial for Christians. And it is this: the way we are created is there's one aspect to us that we can never walk away from, and it's the only thing that I can think of that we can never walk away from, and that is interpretation. We are created compulsive mm -hmm. interpreters. We cannot not interpret ever for a millisecond, not even when we're asleep. Um, people who know stuff about the brain, the neuroscience of it, yeah. and what the brain does at night and, and, and so on. It's, it's, it's incredible. We can walk away from religion if we want. We can walk away from politics. We can walk away from one country to another country. We can put ourselves in a rocket and shoot ourselves in outer space if we want to get away from Earth. We can never get away from uh Inter interpretation so my point is might as well get better at it and to me it's a tragedy that the christian world is so utterly yes. lousy when it comes to the skill of interpretation where we should actually be uh, yes. a, a good sample a, a, a good example or an example of good interpretation so that others sit up and say you know, like in that movie when Harry met Sally and, and, the, and they're saying at the next table, I don't know if you know the scene. I oh, yeah, yeah. Detail, what she's having. We're ha I want what, what she's having. That, that's that's right. what that's what should drive us. And I think hermeneutics or, or interpretation being the better term here, that's really uh, what we need to invest in. Not this denomination or, or that theological scheme or, um, you know, or, or necessarily this book or that yep. book. 
good interpretation, better interpretation, that should be key to everything. And I wish seminaries understood that too. Absolutely. Friends, regardless of where you are in hermeneutics and interpretation, keep mm-hmm. it heady, but you can learn it and you can start where you are by just by reading, reading differently. And then I'd say reading widely. So absolutely. Uh, Thorsten, thanks so much for being here. Thank I you. I appreciate you. And maybe we can have another conversation, dive into this a little bit more. Would be fun. Uh, th- thanks friends. Thank you. Thank you.